right, let's just open in a word of prayer this morning. Father, we thank you for your love towards us. We thank you for those songs that we could reflect on your person, your work. Remember that you truly are the long-awaited-for Messiah, the hope of all the world. I pray even as we attempt in our feeble attempt to draw our attention during this month of December towards a manger, the incarnation of Christ taking on flesh, the God-man, fully man, fully God, making a way to be reconciled back to God. We know as that story certainly starts in a manger this time of year, we know it ends at a cross, but ultimately even at an empty tomb with your victory over sin, death, and hell. And So Father, we celebrate those realities this morning, and I pray that our mind, our hearts would be attuned to those truths this morning as we attempt to recalibrate our flesh, recalibrate our weary and wandering mind back to the foot of the cross and remember Jesus and remember his sacrifice this morning. So we thank you and praise you for this time, the gathered church coming together to worship you. What a beautiful truth and blessing it has been for me even this morning. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. As I pray, Jesus truly is the long-awaited-for Messiah. Do you believe that this morning? The chosen one, the one prophesied of old. And I hope this just small Advent series uh, has been a blessing to you, as maybe you were reminded of uh, maybe some new truths, some new realities uh, in relation to Jesus and who He is, but more than likely, they have been uh, precious reminders uh, to many of us of who he is. And just a couple weeks ago, Dave kicked off our Advent series with that message, The Promised Messiah. Uh, we had an opportunity just last week, or excuse me, that was Andy that kicked us off. And then Dave last week, bringing our message, The Prophecy Fulfilled. This morning, I have an opportunity to bring a message entitled, The Peace That Is Provided. The Peace That Is Provided. And uh, hopefully you can see the progression here as we're building through this series that Jesus certainly was God, right? He was prophesied, He fulfilled all those prophecies, but He came on a mission. He came with a, a purpose, and it was to meet our need, uh, our desperate need to have our sin taken care of by His shed blood on the cross. So we have this morning an opportunity to look at Jesus, the Prince of Peace, and consider our own standing before God Himself. And consider, am I relating to Jesus rightly as Savior and Lord? So peace is an interesting word in the society and culture that we live in, right? We see peace talked about literally all the time um, with all kinds of different understandings of what peace really is. Uh, the definition that that I wrote down that resonated with me uh, that we're going to build on throughout this sermon is that peace is this. It's a state or a period in which there is no war or a war has been ended or been resolved or been taken away. It also has the idea of a freedom from a disturbance. This is, this is peace. Every single individual, every single human on the face of the earth at some point in their life wrestles with, how can I grasp a hold of and experience peace in my life, right? Maybe interactions with friends or colleagues or uh, those at work or your neighbors. I'm sure at some point this idea of, hey, I just am looking for some peace, it's come up at some point in conversations. Maybe you and yourself have wrestled with, man, I'm experiencing chaos, I just the circumstances of life are heavy and I just want what? I just want some peace and quiet. So peace is this somewhat elusive term in our society, right? And most people understand it as a state of mind, right? Or, or they understand it as a, a program. Uh, a quick Google search this morning on uh, how do I find inner peace resulted in about 5,735 entries of steps 
or ways that you can grasp a hold of inner peace. And those steps are usually packaged in just that 5, 10, 15 steps that you just have to follow or implement in your life so that you can have peace. But in reality, we know that peace can't be accomplished or attained in and of ourselves. Right? We can't bring ourselves to a state of peace because of who we are as a sinner, as a human being. Our life will always be in a state of, of chaos and disarray and disrepair without the Prince of Peace intervening and allowing us by His grace to experience true, lasting peace. So the question is this morning, is inner peace just a state of mind or is it something Much more than that. This really is the question that we should be grappling with this Christmas season. In the midst of all the hustle and bustle of shopping, consumerism, holiday parties, family gatherings, church services, and more, the human spirit, your spirit and my spirit, longs above all else to find peace and rest. We were created to experience that peace and rest in a relationship with God. We saw that in the first few chapters of Genesis, didn't we? That we were created to be in intimate fellowship with God, the Creator. But what broke that fellowship? What broke that relationship? It was our sin. Whether one realizes it or not, we prop up many of these things, the things that I just listed, shopping, consumerism, holiday parties, family gatherings. We use all of these things in some way to try to attain to or grasp a hold of of peace in this chaotic world that we live in. But there is no thing or object, there's no philosophy or program that can bring us peace. But rather, there is a person who can bring us peace. And this person is of divine nature. And this person came for this very reason, this very purpose, to provide us peace. Friends, there are many names that this individual, this person goes by. But we find a significant list of his names in this messianic prophecy found in Isaiah chapter number nine, verses number six and seven, where it reads this, for to us a child is born. To us, a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called what? Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. And as we've seen over this Advent series, he certainly has done that work, hasn't he? Jesus taking on flesh, Emmanuel, God with us, taking on flesh, living a perfect life, going to the cross, providing payment for our sin, defeating sin, death, and hell, raising from the dead so that we can be made right in the eyes of God. I would contend this morning that based on the truth of Scripture, that peace, right? Remember our definition, the state or period in which there is no war or the freedom from disturbance can never truly be remedied apart from the one who is peace. This morning, we must go to the source of peace, Jesus Christ himself. Friends, we're going to be confronted with the reality this morning that we have a desperate problem We have what I'm going to describe as a fatal wound. And we need much more than the band-aid of our own wisdom, the ideas that we can conjure up to stop the bleeding and provide healing. We need Jesus. We need true, lasting, authentic, real peace. And that can only come from Jesus Christ. So what's the big idea of our sermon this morning? It's this. Because Jesus is the Prince of Peace. He alone can rescue the sinner and provide eternal peace between God and man. Let me read that one more time. The big idea of our sermon is this. Write it down if you have a pen. 
Because Jesus is the Prince of Peace, He alone can rescue the sinner and provide eternal peace between God and man. This morning, we're going to look at three different aspects concerning the peace that Jesus secures on our behalf. The first is this. The Prince of Peace provides the payment for our debt. The Prince of Peace provides the payment for our debt. And we're really going to look at this morning at the doctrine of justification in regards to this first point. So follow with me as we uh, understand this reality that the Prince of Peace, Jesus Christ, provides payment for our debt. To fully grasp the weight and the reality of this first point, one must first come to grips with the truth that the human race, at a macro level, that's all of us, has a big problem. But sometimes the world likes to stop just right there. We like to look at everybody else, but yet we don't take it down to the micro level, the individual that you and me and every single one of us have a, have a horrible and desperate problem. And it's this, that we are a sinner. And just as Adam and Eve rebelled against God in the Garden of Eden, they went against his will. They went against his, against his purposes and plans. Guess what we have done? We have done the same in our own life. Psalm 51.5 says, Behold, I was shapen in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. I was born in sin. It is my nature. It's who I am. I have chosen that sin over God's purposes and plan for my life. That's a big deal. Why? Because sin has a penalty. Romans 6.23, For the wages of sin is what? It's death. That's exactly right. You kids are memorizing that in a Awana class, I'm sure, right? For the wages, what we earn for our sin is death. And that's not just a physical death, which it is, but it's also a spiritual death that results in what? A separation from God and man. And man must be punished for their sin. Why? Because God is holy and just. And so to pay for that sin, we're cast into a real literal place called hell. Not a popular message in the day that we live in, is it? But it's a reality of the God that we serve. There is a penalty for our sin. Thus, we have an eternal predicament that needs to be solved. So in a way, this morning, we're going to attempt by God's grace to reverse engineer our way to true peace. By that I mean we're going to start at the recognition of our war and conflict and work our way back to the source of that war, which is our own individual sin. But it's at that source that we'll also find the source of peace, Jesus Christ. I was hoping that, uh, I don't think I'm seeing the matinees here this morning, do I? I don't. How many of you ever been to, down in southern Missouri, Alley Springs? Any of you ever been there? Okay, only one. Uh, there, there's a beautiful spring in southern Missouri called, called Alley Springs, and you have to kind of get to it by way of following really just a creek. It's just a little creek that you would follow back through the woods. It winds and it turns all the way back, I don't know, maybe a mile or so back into the woods. And off in the distance, you can see this winding brook, this little creek that starts to get bigger and broader, and it ultimately opens up into this most picturesque place that you've ever seen. That might be a little bold. Uh, but a beautiful place right there in the middle of the woods that they call Alley Springs. I don't know why it's called that, but it opens up to the source of what? The spring. And it's at the source of the spring that there is the most crystal clear and literally ice cold water that is just coming up from the ground that is rushing down into this creek that is providing, I'm sure, life and and, and sustenance for uh, the nature that it, that it goes through. But ultimately this morning, I want us to take a little journey and we're going to follow this, this path of our sin. We're going to follow this path of the struggle, or follow a path of conflict and enmity and hostility and strife. And we're going to follow that all the way back to the source of ultimately where we're going to find healing and peace that's provided in the person and work of Jesus Christ. The Prince of Peace provides payment for our debt. Before one can really appreciate, understand, and even receive a payment for a debt, they must first acknowledge that they are in debt, right? That's what I'm, I'm trying to build in this first point is we have to come to grips with the reality that I have a problem. 
culture and society that we live in, we kind of think pretty highly of ourselves, don't we? You guys ever fall into that trap yourselves where, hey, I'm not as bad as this person or I'm not as bad as that person. Well, I'm certainly not doing that sin or that activity, so certainly I can't be that bad in the eyes of God. James 2.10 says if you offend the law at one point, you're guilty of what? Of all of it. So there are no degrees of, of sinfulness, right? We are all sinners. We're all in the same state of having this <laughs> eternal predicament that needs to be solved for. We are in an incredible debt that we could never work our way out of. We could never resolve or pay for this debt that is against our account. And so we need help. When's the last time you remembered that about yourself this morning? Isn't it easy for us in our subculture of Christianity to sometimes point the finger at this aspect of culture or society? And before we know it, we start puffing ourselves up as a Pharisee. Hey, I'm thankful that I'm not as were some of these, but we're going to look at some texts this morning to remind us of who we were before Christ so that we can value this payment of our sin on our behalf. Romans 8, we're going to look there first. Verse number one says this, For there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ. There was bondage there, but because of Christ, we've been set free from the law of sin and death. Death has no, no dominion over us now. It has no right over us. It has no control over us. Through Christ, we've been set free. It goes on in verse number three, for God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on, on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death. That's that penalty that we talked about earlier. But to set the mind on the Spirit of life is life and peace. It's life and peace. Verse 7, for the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So in Romans 8, we see this contrast of life and death, of hostility and conflict and, and peace. So as we're looking at the peace that is provided through the personal work of Jesus Christ, we can't fully understand it and appreciate it until we understand our state without Christ. Romans 8 uses this term hostility. The truth of Scripture describes our state without Christ, the Prince of Peace, to be a, a hostile one. That's, that's a strong word, isn't it? When you think of hostility or, or a group or an individual that is hostile in nature. Do, do you have a mental picture of, of the proactive, antagonistic, offensive type of disposition and demeanor that that person has in that scenario? They are hostile. That's a strong word. And it was used intentionally, not by accident. This is our state. This is our disposition, our demeanor. This is our posture towards God that we are hostile to Him without Christ. Wow. You might remember in Romans 8, the, the old King James word here is used, enmity with God. Right? We're, in, we're literally in an enemy type of relationship with God without Christ. We're rebellious and offensively hostile to His person, His work, His purposes, His will, and His plan for mankind. Both words, hostile and enmity, are extremely accurate as we wrap our minds around the reality that in my sin, I am declaring a state of war against the Creator of all things. I shake my proverbial fist, and maybe even literally for some, in the face of God and declare my way, my wisdom, my rights, and my desires over that of God's. Friends, this is who we are without Christ. This is who we are before Christ. Do you remember? You say, Eric, what's, 
what's the big deal? about Why do we need to remember who we are before Christ? Shouldn't we just remember who we are in Christ and going forward? But friends, lest we remember where we came from, and lest we remember who we are without Christ, we cannot truly value and appreciate and uphold the work that Jesus Christ has done upon our behalf. So we're building a case. We're building a case this morning. Building as we move along of understanding the value and the worth and the beauty of this baby in a manger who has come and take, taken on flesh. To truly appreciate it and value it is to understand our state as a sinner. My life without Christ is a direct affront to his plans and purposes for my life. I am at war with God without Christ. Wow. Friends, we've learned in the past in our series of Genesis that this predicament of sin started at the earliest stages of mankind. Adam and Eve rebelling right there in the garden as we saw recorded in the pages of Genesis, but this rebellion against the Word of God, His plans and purposes, get this, was not just an Adam and Eve issue. Right? Do, we, do we remember that? Do we know that? This problem of sin, this eternal predicament of my rebellion and me being at war, enmity and hostility against God, this isn't just an Adam and Eve issue. Romans 5 tells us in verse number 12, therefore just as sin came into the world through one man, Adam, and death through sin, the Garden of Eden. And so death spread to all men because all have sinned. It's that rebellion, the sin that we are all plagued with that has caused this hostile conflict, this state of enmity between God and mankind. And friends, do you remember our series in Ephesians chapter number two? I love this passage so much. It describes our state without Christ, but it also describes the provision that he extends to meet our most desperate need. It describes this idea of an appayment for our debt. Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 5. Turn with me there, if you would. Ephesians chapter number 2, verses 1 through 5. It says this, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Is that Paul in his letter to the church at Ephesus here taking a, a little glimpse back and remembering kind of what we're trying to do this morning? In which you once walked. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. That was your nature. That's who you were. That was your identity. He goes off go on, going on following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. That's who we were, the sons of disobedience. Verse three, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Verse four, here it is. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Can you say amen to that this morning? We were dead in our trespasses and sins. We were the sons of disobedience. We were walking and following the prince of the power of the air. We were by nature children of wrath, but for God, that's who we would still be. Lest we need a reminder. It's who we would still be. I have no ability to breathe new life into my own spirit. I have no ability by my works, by my money, by my actions, by my thoughts or anything to be able to breathe life into a dead corpse. But God, this is something that only he could do. So it's in this passage that we observe this divine intervention. God understanding and knowing our rebellion and debt, what does he do? He inserts himself into the history of mankind to provide a way for the hostile relationship to be restored. But God, two of my favorite words in the Bible, Friends, this morning as we go through this Christmas season and we go through scenes of nativity and we 
reflect on wise men and shepherds and angels and we go through the Christmas story and we might spend time together as family or we might be involved in some type of community event or activity. I pray that those stories might have just fresh new life to them as we consider God himself coming down to this earth, taking on flesh for a purpose, not for a story in a book, but for a purpose to meet my need of sin and to meet yours and to make that available to the world. This is an incredible and beautiful reality. This is why Jesus has come. This is why he is Emmanuel, meaning God with us. This truly is the reason for the season. You'll hear that phrase if you haven't already in the coming weeks. Jesus breaking through into the story of mankind to make right that which has been made wrong through my actions, through my rebellion. Jesus describes in Luke 19 of his own purpose for coming to the earth. He says, for the Son of Man came to what? Seeking to save the lost. He didn't come to establish his own earthly kingdom. He didn't come to make his name great. He came to do the will of the Father. And he said, I have come to seek out To seek out whom? The lost. Those in debt. Matthew 20, verse 28. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life. Here it is. As a ransom for for many. He has come to seek. He has come to give His life as a ransom. Something that we could not do for our own. Mark 2, verse number 17. And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. This is why Jesus has come, friends. Understanding that purpose, that mission that the Father has sent Jesus on, there's a beautiful text in 1 Corinthians chapter number 15, verses 55 and 56, where we are confronted with the reality and the truth that He completed His mission. That which He was given to do came to pass. 1 Corinthians 15, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, remember death is the penalty of sin. That's our eternal predicament. That's our rebellion. That's our hostility. That's our enmity with God. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, this is a time of celebration. The Prince of Peace has made a payment for my sin. So Jesus, as the Prince of Peace, He does just that. He provides the payment for our debts. This is, again, as we introduce so closely related to a rich and beautiful doctrine that, again, I would be remiss if I didn't take a moment to just consider the quality and the quantity and the completeness of God's provision on our behalf. This work of pain for our sins As you look at the pages of theology, it has many different nuances and names, but broadly it's known as this doctrine of justification. And you say, yeah, Eric, that's that's great. I'm glad to hear that. I know something, doctrine of justification, that's great. But friends, get this. When rightly understood, as described in Scripture, this doctrine, I promise you, will be a precious truth that you run to often in your walk with the Lord. Understanding that I have been justified before God because of the work of Jesus is an incredible truth that we need to know, understand, and appreciate this morning. So what is justification? Paul uses this term in his first letter to the church at Corinth, chapter 6, verse 11. He says, and such were some of you, there he goes again, looking back, but you were washed You were sanctified. You were justified. How? In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. One commentator described justification in this way. Justification is the legal act of God whereby He declares the believing sinner righteous on the basis of what? The substitutionary, atoning, propitiatory, 
redeeming, reconciling, regenerating, adoptive work of Christ. That was a mouthful. What does substitutionary mean? Christ taking our place. What does atoning mean? Meaning he has made reparations for our sin. What does propitiatory mean? You've heard that term. He was the propitiation of our sins. Meaning he has satisfied the demand of sin, which was what? Death. Redeeming. Meaning we were bought back. Reconciled, meaning the relationship was restored. Regenerating, meaning what? We went from death to life. And ultimately adoptive work of Christ, meaning we were ushered out of one family and brought into a new family. And our identity, our inheritance, and our name was changed. We're no longer children of wrath. We're no longer sons of disobedience. We're children of God most high. This is a beautiful reality. This is the doctrine of justification. It is that act of God whereby he literally acquits the gospel believer of the divine verdict of condemnation and declares him to be righteous. This is a legal term. We would be guilty and we were guilty But Christ has taken our place. He has taken on that sin. And He has declared us completely 100% righteous before the eyes of God. Even more than that, it is not just a pronouncement of innocence. It is a declaration of true righteousness. The believer is now in good standing with God and God treats him accordingly. Death Condemnation, hell, judgment is no longer our verdict, but rather relationship, inheritance, eternal life. Another nuance of our doctrine of justification, we call this concept positional justification. Although I'm bound by this flesh that still struggles and wrestles with sin, I am positionally viewed by God as if I have never sinned. This is incredible. I'm declared righteous because of Jesus. And get this, because of this work that Jesus has done, this great exchange of Him taking my sin in unrighteousness and Christ's and, and, and him giving me his righteousness, this allows for that hostile relationship that was riddled with enmity and re- rebellion to be fully and completely restored. You guys remember Romans chapter number three. I think it best describes this process of justification and positional justification. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Verse 24, we are justified by his grace as a gift. As a gift. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. His grace, a gift, is how this justification is secured by the believer. It is by His grace, His simple gift, that justification is possible. But not only through the personal work of Jesus Christ, the Prince of Peace, but God the Father has this desire as well. God the Father desires to be in relationship with His people. So we have a Trinitarian view here, right? God the Father desires to be in relationship, so what did He do? He sent His Son to be born of a virgin that we celebrate this time of year. And as Christ went to the cross, defeated death and hell, and as we place our simple childlike faith in Him, He seals us with what? The promised Holy Spirit, who is our guarantee until that day of glory. And that Holy Spirit is that counselor that comforter, that paraclete, that one who ministers to us in our time of need, that one who is making intercession 
before the throne of grace with groanings which cannot be uttered. This beautiful idea of the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit ministering to us to meet our desperate need of sin. Jesus alone initiates, sustains, and upholds our faith before God the Father and establishes a decree of peace. Do you remember the decree that we declared in our flesh without Christ? We declared what? A state of of war. And Christ, through His work on the cross, He's declaring a decree of peace. The war has been resolved. It's been settled. It is finished, Jesus said on the cross. And the enmity, the hostility between God and man can be taken away. There's a decree of peace. The war, the enmity, the strife, the rebellion, the disturbance with eternal implications has been resolved. And friends, it was a baby born of a a virgin in a little town of Bethlehem in a manger that would grow up, live a holy life, and perfectly fulfill the mission that the Father had sent him to accomplish, making a way for God and man to be back in relationship. So the work doesn't stop there. Secondly, the Prince of Peace enables the progression of our growth. These next couple points will be shorter, I promise. Second point is the Prince of Peace enables the progression of our growth. This is the doctrine of not justification, but now sanctification. Salvation really isn't the end goal, right? Uh, Maybe in some circles you may have heard this idea of uh, salvation being simply just what? Fire insurance. Just knowing that I'm not going to hell and knowing that I'm going to heaven. Yeah, I'm good. Thumbs up. What's the whole point of salvation? A restored relationship between God and man. And a relationship is all about what? Knowing the one who has saved us. So now we enter into this, we're positionally justified. Now we enter into this relationship with God as enabled by the Holy Spirit, His Word, and the body of Christ to do what? Grow in our knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We see this concept and this idea, I think, best illustrated in the extension of a passage that we read earlier out of Ephesians chapter number two. We read verses one through five. Now we're going to pick up in verse six. It reads this, and Christ raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Why? So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ. Verse 8 and 9, familiar verses. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is what? The gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. Verse 10, for we are his workmanship, created for what? In Christ Jesus, for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. God says, I save you. Now go to work for me. Not to earn more grace in my eyes, not to, not to get more saved, but go to work. Why? Because I've saved you. Because I love you. Because I want to know you. Because you want to know me. Because this is how we strengthen our relationship. We work together so that the glory of God is made known on this earth. We are His workmanship in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. I love this passage in 2 Peter chapter 1. Turn there with me. 2 Peter chapter number 1. This idea of the Prince of Peace enabling us for growth. Second Peter chapter number one. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. That's a it's actually a really complex verse right there. Um, and it's easy to just kind of glance past it. His, God, divine power, creator of all things, has granted to us all things 
that pertain to life and godliness. So we have divine power that is given to you and me, those that have been saved, those who are followers of Christ, all things that pertain to life and godliness. What, what does that mean? We've been given everything that we need to live this Christian life for his glory. It goes on and, and says, to the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, verse four, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. So some of the resources that God has given us by his divine power are these precious and great promises. That would be the word of God, right? And he's given us those precious and great promises as a way of escape. We're positionally justified, but we're still bound by what? We're still bound by flesh and sin. There's still the prince and the power of the air that is influencing us with his philosophies and ideas and ideologies. And we're always in the state of what? Hey, put on the whole armor of God. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against rulers and powers and principalities, right? And so, so we go on. We're always in a state of spiritual warfare. We haven't arrived. We don't know everything. We're in this state of progressive sanctification was the second doctrine that we're going to look at. What does sanctification mean? What's the root word of sanctification? To sanctify. To sanctify literally just simply means to set apart, right? To set apart towards something, but also from something. So as a believer, when Christ draws me to himself and by his grace, I respond in childlike faith to that gift of grace and mercy and the personal work of Jesus Christ, he sets me apart to himself but also, what, from the world. You see the distinction. That's repentance, a, a turning, a change of mind, a, a change of heart that results in a change of action. So I was going towards the world, hell-bound on pursuing my own way, my own plans and purposes. And God saved me. He set me apart. And now I'm in relationship with Him. <coughs> this is a beautiful reality of the doctrine of sanctification. But this doesn't happen overnight. I wrestle just like Paul did in Romans chapter 7. The good that I know I should be doing, I don't do. The wrong I know I shouldn't be doing, that's what I find myself doing. And Paul, this great hero of the faith, says, Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from the body of this death? And he says in Romans 8, I thank God through my Lord Jesus Christ. There's deliverance. There's precious and great promises that have made a way of escape that we may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. But here it goes, verse five. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness, steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. And that's quite the list, isn't it? Let's get this. It's sanctification. It's not salvation. What does Peter say here? It's a distinguishing word. It's supplement. The King James Version uses add to your faith, right? We have saving faith. It's secured. It's of no work of mine, lest any man should boast. So saving faith is secured in the personal work of Jesus Christ, but we are his workmanship, right? that we are to go and do good works that God has prepared beforehand for us, that we should walk in them. So here are these good works. It's the fruit of the Spirit. It's pursuing our knowledge of Jesus Christ, and we supplement our faith. We strengthen our faith. We grow our faith. We mature our faith as a result of what? Engaging in godly activity. Verse 5 says, For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 9, here's the warning. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Friends, when we view our salvation as just simply fire insurance, what's the danger? 
that we forget the joy of our salvation, that we forget the true magnitude of what God has done in making a payment for our sin. We forget the reality of truly who the Prince of Peace is, what He has overcome, what He has defeated on our behalf. We become so nearsighted that we become blind and we forget about being cleansed from our former sins. We forget our salvation. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. Verse 11, for in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is the hope that Christ has provided for us in himself, that he saves us, he makes a payment for our sin and our debt. He allows for that relationship with God to be restored. We are now his workmanship and we get to work for his glory. And then thirdly and finally, the Prince of Peace sustains the perseverance of our faith. Looking at the doctrine of glorification. Philippians 1 verse number 6, and I am sure of this that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. The Prince of Peace sustains the perseverance of our faith. He will hold me fast. It's not my grip on the Lord, it's his, it's his grip on me. And aren't you thankful that no man can pluck us out of his hand, that greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world? God has not given us a spirit of fear, but a power and of love and of a sound mind. And we can have hope. We can have security. And we can live another day. We can take another step of obedience, no matter what the circumstances we may be facing are telling us. We can have hope because of what Jesus Christ has done on our behalf. So friends, this morning, these Advent messages should draw us into a state of remembrance. And that state of remembrance should draw us into a state of value. What am I living for? What am I running after? What do I value and appreciate? What do I hold up dear? What am I prioritizing through my actions, my resources, my time and money? If we're brought to a state of remembrance and we truly see Christ in this way and we truly see ourselves in this way, will we not truly say, only let my manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come or see you or I'm absent, I may have hear you that you're standing firm in one spirit, in one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel? As Paul said in Philippians chapter number one, verse number 27 and 28, has your commitment to Christ fallen on hard times? Has the cares of this world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, have they drawn you away from remembering the, the true value, worth, and beauty of Christ and Him crucified? Jesus is the Prince of Peace. Because there is a war raging in our world. There is an enemy and he desires you. He desires your life. He desires your family. He desires your children. He desires to ruin and wreck the name and the cause of Christ. He desires to take down leaders in the church. He desires to, to give churches black eyes in their community. There's a thief who has come to steal, kill, and destroy. But Christ says, I have come that you may have life and have it more abundantly the Prince of Peace, Jesus Christ, came in the humility of a baby. But let's remember that he will return as a conquering king and judge over all things and all peoples. So the question for all of us this morning is this. Who is this baby in the manger to you? Who is this baby in a manger to you? Do I know him just as a holiday figure during this Christmas season? Or do I know him as Savior and Lord because the eyes of my heart have been enlightened by the Holy Spirit and he has drawn me to himself and I have by his grace responded in simple childlike faith. Romans 10, 
9 and 10, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified. And with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Christmas, above all else, is a beautiful message of salvation. That peace has come to the world because the person and work of the Prince of Peace, Jesus Christ. Do you know Jesus? Is he your Prince of Peace? Has he met your desperate need of sin? Do you know him in that way? Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you this morning for these precious and great promises that we can cling to. I pray that our hearts would be stirred up this morning as we just simply remember in a topical Advent Christmas message about the peace that you provide in our life and in this world. Glory to you, Father, for the work that you have done. I pray that we would value, appreciate it, understand it, hold fast to it and persevere in the work that you have called us to do. That even as we have humbly attempted to articulate a mission of Liberty Hills as best as we can to go and make mature followers of Christ to the glory of God. Father, I wonder if that mission, your purpose, the Great Commission, to go and make disciples, is, is that on our mind? Is that on our heart? I pray that you would use this Advent series as next week we have an opportunity to come and to hear the Christmas story in its entirety, to reflect on additional scripture readings, to enjoy and appreciate and worship in <coughs> special music and congregational singing. I pray that our heart would once again be stirred up. And Father, what a great joy of celebration it will be to gather together in communion around your table, reflecting on the personal work of Jesus. So Father, I pray that you would again continue to um, do a work as we finish out this month of December, as we get back into our Genesis series. Let our salvation, let your work that you did uh, not just become commonplace, a thing of the past. Let it motivate us, let it stir us up every day. We thank you in Jesus' name, amen.